What's up, everybody? How we doing? All right, we'll try that again. What's up, everybody? How we doing? Much better. Welcome to Saw Company Kickoff. I love that we get to call it Spring Kickoff because it's the spring semester, but it's the farthest thing from spring right now. Let's be real. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jordan. I get the privilege of being on staff here. It's a joy. Get to walk with a bunch of you dudes during the week, which is fun. Open up our Bibles, talk about Jesus. It's a great time. Was with a ton of you at Salt Company Conference recently. Come on. That was pretty sweet. Uh, but here's the deal. We're starting another semester. There's a lot that's in store for us. And if you are new to Salt Company, we just want to say welcome. We are so glad you're here. Even if you're like, this is weird, I don't know if I belong, people were just raising their hands and singing, this is freaking me out. It's like, hey, give us the benefit of the doubt, hang out with us for a few weeks, I trust that you will enjoy belonging to our community. Okay, so I'm going to give you a quick intro to who we are at Salt Company. Uh, if you've been around, again, this won't surprise you, but if you're relatively new, I want you to kind of hear core DNA of who we are. So we have three statements we say frequently around here. The first is we are a family, not an event, which means that though we gather on Thursday nights, we are so much more than that. Because when life gets hard, you need more than an event to show up to. You need a family to belong to. And so we also do connection groups throughout the week. This is an opportunity for you to be fully known and fully loved, an opportunity for you to actually bear your burdens with people and step into authentic faith to bring real questions and real challenges to the table and allow other people to speak into that. So we're a family, not an event. Secondly, we say we value forever more than semesters. Part of our ministry philosophy is we are a ministry arm of a local church because here's what's true. You will one day graduate college. You will one day be too old to belong to a college ministry and we don't want you to peak in college. We want you to have a thriving faith, and for that to be on an upward trajectory until the day you die. So we exist within a local church to train your instincts to love Jesus for a lifetime, not just for a couple years while you're at college. And then lastly, we say that we take Jesus seriously, not ourselves. One verse that we look at frequently is Acts 4.13. It's talking about a couple disciples, and it says, when they saw these men they perceived that they were untrained, ordinary men who had been with Jesus. And we just acknowledge that we are not a big deal. We're super ordinary people. But at the end of the day, we want people to say, they've been with Jesus. Like, Jesus is a big deal. The gospel is amazing. They're just ordinary people trying to follow him. And if you haven't already figured out, this whole idea of being ordinary comes supernatural, like, to me. It's not hard. I was born the runt of the litter. My brother is 6'4". I am not. Uh, I grew up in a town of 1,800 people in northwest Iowa. Never made homecoming court. Hilarious. Was never valedictorian. Never got picked first at recess. Right? Being ordinary came naturally to me. But if I'm honest, that bothered me. It bothered me so much because I didn't want to be ordinary. I wanted to be great. Like, I wanted to outwork people. I wanted to outperform people. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the smartest. I wanted to be the most attractive, fill in the blank. Have you ever felt that way? Just this, like, restlessness with ordinary? 
this desire to be great in any area of your life? Of course you have. You've felt this. Because you're actually made with ambition. You're created with ambition. This restlessness inside of you exists because you're made for more than ordinary. The problem is we just get it wrong. We get it wrong. So we're made with ambition. We live in a world that celebrates greatness, but here's how we try to pursue it. We want to be people that graduate with honors. We want to get the high-paying job. We want to make varsity. We want to be All-Americans, win championships. We want to be in great shape, look as attractive as possible, get the Instagram-worthy lifestyle, get that Stanley Cup from Starbucks. Like, whatever you want to do, like, there's something within you that's like, I want to be great. I want people to see me as great. And if you're honest, you've seen this go terribly wrong. I mean, at best, it's left you exhausted and worn out. Like, have you guys ever been to the gym and seen those, like, stair climbers that kind of are like a treadmill? Where it's like you're climbing stairs, but you're actually not even going anywhere? That thing is the worst, by the way. But that's what it feels like. You're just climbing these stairs, trying to get to the top, but you're not going anywhere. It's exhausting. But I think to make matters worse, you've seen this get destructive, Maybe in your life or maybe just around you. Maybe you came to college and you're like, hey, I want to pursue success in school. And so in the name of studying really hard and getting good grades, you completely neglected relationships. You put aside friendships. Maybe you even put aside your relationship with Jesus in the name of trying to get better grades. Or maybe you came to college and you put aside your own moral ethic because you wanted to be great to the people around you. And so you started saying, hey, I know that I shouldn't get drunk every weekend, but that's what you've been doing. Or maybe you came to college and you're like, hey, I want to like, fight for purity, but then you gave yourself up physically to somebody of the opposite sex because you wanted them to love you. And maybe, like I said, maybe it's less of you've seen destruction like in your life personally, but you've seen it happen around you. Maybe you've had a parent that in the name of trying to climb the corporate ladder was absent in your life. Or you have a friend whose father walked out on his family in the name of trying to pursue another relationship, and it's led to destruction. And I'm reminded of a story in the book of Genesis. If you guys have a Bible, would love for you guys to get it out. Uh, the word Genesis just means origins, and so this book is included in our Bible to really point us back to our family history. It's an opportunity for us to see, hey, this is where we came from, and Genesis 11 actually points to this fact that we're made with ambition, and we see it go wrong. So I'm going to read just a few verses for you out of Genesis 11. It says, The whole earth had one language in the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then in verse 5 it says, and the Lord came down. If you have a physical Bible, I'd ask you to underline that. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. There's several problems as we just look at Genesis 11 that we need to understand. The first is that we all want to make ourselves great. We all want to make a name for ourselves. And secondly, with that, we will do whatever we can to try. Like these guys are literally burning stones thoroughly and trying to build a tower to heaven to try and get themselves to God. They're doing whatever they can, but as we'll see, number three, God is not impressed by our efforts, right? These guys are trying to build this giant tower to the heavens, and it says the Lord came down. He's like, oh, cute, cute giant tower you're building. Let me just climb all the way down from heaven to see this tiny tower that I see. And then lastly, we see that the end result is destruction, right? These people are dispersed over all the face of the earth. They have to, like, see all of their efforts just crumble. They can't even finish it. But, Salt Company, what you need to know is that God is not anti-ambition, and he's not even anti-greatness, because if you would just look at the next chapter, Genesis 12, here's what he says to a man by the name of Abram. He says, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will, what? Make your name great. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So, God actually cares about greatness, and he's not asking us tonight, how do we stop trying to be great? That's not what he's asking us. The question that he is asking is, how can we achieve true greatness? Or maybe you could ask it this way, what does it actually mean to be great in God's eyes? What does it mean to be great in God's eyes? What does it mean to have greatness that won't crumble and lead to destruction, but actually will last forever? So we're actually going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 18. This is the first book of the New Testament. It's written by a guy by the name of Anybody? Matthew, good answer. Uh, one thing you should know about Matthew is his background was he was a tax collector, which culturally speaking, tax collectors were enemies of the people of God. They were cheaters and traitors. They were viewed as the chief of sinners. And now he is writing a book about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so maybe even you coming in tonight, you're like, I have no place in the church because they have no idea what I've done. Let the fact that Matthew penned the good news of Jesus Christ be an encouragement to you tonight, that you cannot out the grace of God and that he can redeem anybody's story. Matthew, 
chapter 18, a lot has happened in Jesus' life, right? He's been born, he's been baptized, he's been tempted in the wilderness, he's taught a ton. We covered the Sermon on the Mount in the fall. He's performed countless miracles, healing blind people, bringing people literally from death to life. He's fed crowds of people by multiplying food. He's cast out demons. And the chapter right before this uh, is an event called the Transfiguration, where Jesus takes a few of his disciples up on the mountain, and he, he kind of allows them to see him in his full God form. Like Jesus came fully God, fully man, but he takes these men up on this mountain and he says, hey, I want you to see my deity. I want you to see just how God I really am. And these men fall on their face in worship. They cannot believe what they've seen. And in Matthew 18, verse 1, right shortly after the transfiguration, Here's what it says they're doing. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if you would look at a couple other accounts of this story, one in the book of Mark, chapter 9, and one in the book of Luke, chapter 9, these disciples were actually arguing with one another. They were arguing about who was the greatest. Can you imagine, like, You just saw God with your own eyes, and yet you're still so selfish that you're asking the question, all right, now which of us is the greatest? And it's not even like, how can we be great? It's how can we be the greatest? How can we be the best? And when you want to be the best, that means that not just do you want to climb the ladder, you want other people to be worse than you. I've seen this play out in my own life, right? Wishing and working for my own little kingdom, and it's not enough to just be good at something. You have to be better than other people. So I think of athletics, right? My freshman year at college, I had a good friend of mine named Derek, and we were competing for the same starting spot. And I didn't want Derek to get the spot. I wanted it. Like, the idea of being JV anything sounded awful. So it wasn't like, oh, may the best man win. It was like, I want Derek to suck so that I can get the spot, right? And then I took physics my junior year of college. Anybody in here taking physics? Okay. My teacher at Iowa State graded on a curve, which was awesome. And I entered into my final exam, and I was like, I hope everybody in here tanks this test. And it was pretty much just so I could get a C, which actually meant I could get an A. I wanted everybody else to fail so that I could get a good grade. And then I got an internship with Iowa State Athletics and several people kind of competing for this same position. And I cared less about how well I could perform. I was almost excited for other people to make mistakes. Because it was like, oh, if they make a mistake, then I stand out. And then if it comes to a job opportunity, your boy's in, right? I wanted to be the best. And in this grand pursuit, of trying to be the greatest, Jesus does something unthinkable. Here's what it says in verse 2. It says, Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And 
I don't expect you guys to understand the cultural narrative of what's happening here, but what Jesus just did to these men is unthinkable. Children in ancient Near Eastern culture were considered inferior, actually to the point where they were viewed more as property than they were as individuals. They were people to be seen but not heard. And in fact, growing up, they were told, hey, your only role is to just look to the adults and learn. And now Jesus is flipping this on its head, and he's taking these adult men, these followers of him, and he's saying, this isn't about children looking to you and learning. It's about you looking at them and learning. You actually have to turn Turn away from what you're doing and become like this child to even enter the kingdom of heaven. And can we all agree, if you want to be great and there is a kingdom of God, can we just all agree that it's like, hey, I'm assuming if you want to be great in God's eyes, that means belonging to his kingdom. Amen? Okay, so if you want to be great, you have to belong to the kingdom. And Jesus says, well, unless you become like this child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean? This can be confusing. And I think one way that this gets misinterpreted is people say, oh, well, children are innocent and they're pure, right? Like, maybe we just need to find a new form of greatness in its moral purity. Okay, I'm going to show you guys my family here. Um, there should be a picture. Okay. This is my wife, Ellie, my three boys. She's holding Silas. He turns a year old here in a couple weeks. Uh, Leo is in between us. And then Blaze is looking at the camera and refusing to smile. Okay, what you need to know, coming from a dad of raising three little boys, is I have never had to teach them how to disobey. This is not a matter of purity or innocence. Like my one-year-old, just yesterday, starts crawling, and I'm like, get back here. And he looks at me and crawls as fast as he can in the opposite direction. And I'm like, okay, didn't have to teach him that. Leo, middle child, literally before I came here tonight, hawked a loogie on our steps inside. And I was like, dude, you can't spit on our steps. And he said, then I'm going to go to a new home. And I'm like, sweet, man, we'll see how that goes. And then Blaze, our oldest, if it's not already evident that he doesn't enjoy listening when we're like, hey, smile for the camera. That's the last thing he wants to do. Uh, he had goldfish. The problem is he finished out the goldfish tonight, and he looked at his brother Leo, and he said, ha ha, I got the goldfish, like just taunting him. And it's like, have we ever had to teach our kids how to disobey? No. And though we can laugh at the disobedience of children, disobedience to God comes naturally to you. You've never had to learn how to rebel against God. And so when it comes to entering the kingdom of God, it can't be about us working harder. It can't be about us measuring up or meeting a moral standard. We can't trust that the good is going to outweigh the bad. Because Romans 6 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. Like what comes naturally to us is rebellion against God. 
So greatness is not about proving ourselves morally. So maybe Jesus is talking about what we've heard as childlike faith. This idea of like a naive form of following and being gullible. Like kids just falling for any trick. And that's not what Jesus is getting at. It's not about naive following or being gullible. Jesus clues us into what he means in the next verse, verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God has taken this child and put him in the midst of his disciples, and he says, you want to know what real greatness looks like? You have to become like this child. And what he's getting at is true humility, a form of helplessness. Children are incredibly vulnerable. They are in absolute danger. Like, think about if I actually called my son Leo on that challenge of, then I'm going to go to a new home. And I said, good luck out there. And I pushed him outside the door and locked it. That dude could do nothing for himself. The fact is, children are unable to advance their own cause without the help, direction, and resources of a parent. And that's what God is calling us to to acknowledge this reality that we are vulnerable and we are unable to advance our own cause. This is where true greatness begins. It's actually the exact opposite of trying to prove yourself as impressive. It's to get honest with yourself and say, I need a savior. Like, I am tired of trying to climb Mount Everest or building this tower to heaven because I cannot measure up. I know that rebellion comes naturally to me. I cannot please God in my own power. I need help. And the good news is, the scriptures tell us that we have a Father in heaven who loves us so much that he's saying, guess what? You can come to me like a child, unable to advance your own cause because I can help you. I can give you direction. I can provide you the resources you need to be restored back into this relationship. And one of the sweetest things of Scripture, you guys, is that we don't have to prove ourselves great to God because he's already proven himself great to us. And in his rescue mission to ransom us back to the Father, you know how he did that? in humility that Jesus, the very Son of God, stepped out of heaven into this broken world we live in, was born as a baby to a teenager in a barn. He grew up as a servant. He was homeless most of his life. He washed his disciples' feet, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lived perfectly and died gruesomely so that you don't have to be impressive. You can simply say, I'm helpless. 
I need a savior. And that's exactly where true greatness begins because as you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's what you get. You get the kingdom of heaven. You are welcomed in as a child of God, as a son of God, as a daughter of God. And when you're saved by Jesus, the only appropriate response is humility. Like, when you realize you can't save yourself, but Jesus can, you actually are willing to give up this desire for greatness because you're secure in who Jesus says you are. You don't have to be great by earthly standards because God has already declared greatness over you. You can regularly acknowledge that you are not a big deal, but God is. And you don't need to prove yourself anymore to anybody else or to him because he has already proven himself faithful to you. And so, we ask the question, what does greatness in God's eyes look like? You could say it this way, greatness in God's eyes looks like childlike humility. Childlike humility. And I want to give you just three simple statements as we look to apply this that I would encourage you uh, to say this to yourself Three simple statements that I would love for you to repeat more frequently to yourself, not just today, not just this week, but throughout the semester, as an opportunity for you to posture yourself in humility. Okay, the first is this, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Humility acknowledges that you cannot save yourself. And this is not a one-time decision. This is like a daily decision. This opportunity to throw ourselves back on the grace of God that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Because you will sin tomorrow. You will sin the next day. You will sin the next day. You will sin for the next week, month, year, decade, and beyond. To throw yourself back on the grace of Jesus and say, I need a Savior. And I trust that you are sufficient. You lived the life I couldn't. You died in my place, and you resurrected to prove that your rescue mission was effective for me. I need a Savior. Secondly, I need God's help. I need God's help. John 15 tells us, Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? That, like, apart from Jesus, you can actually do nothing of eternal value. If you frequently told yourself, I need God's help. I mean, humility acknowledges that you cannot advance your own cause. As you consider, what am I supposed to do for my career? What am I supposed to do with my week, with my schedule, right? What am I supposed to do with family members who I'm struggling to relate with? Like, to pray to God. Prayer is a posture of humility that says, I need your help, God. Please, you've got to show up. You've got to help me. You've got to give me wisdom to open this book, the Bible. This is God's word to us that we don't have to guess what God's character is like. We don't have to guess where he's leading us or what he wants from us. He's spoken. And to say, God, I need your wisdom. I want to open your word, and I want you to show me where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do. I need God's help. And lastly... To say, I need other people. I need other people. Humility acknowledges that isolation is pride. 
Isolation is pride. When you try to just do life on your own, you're saying, I don't need anybody's help. And that's just not true. You have blind spots. You need other people to call them out. You are weak, and you need other people's strengths to carry you through seasons of weakness. You need other people around you. And in fact, if we want to actually live in humility, right, the call is from Philippians 2 to consider others' interests as more significant than our own. (laughs) Right, like humility actually looks like serving people. And you know what you can't do when you do life alone? You can't live in humility. (laughs) You can't serve other people. You can't consider other people's interests more significant than your own. And so you need other people. I need a savior. I need God's help. I need other people. This just postures us in a place of childlike humility. Do you guys understand how freeing this is? Like really the the offer on the table for you tonight is to get off the stairmaster of trying to be great in earthly eyes. And to to stop trying to earn it and to simply just receive greatness that God is graciously giving to you. That's so freeing. You can die to this Genesis 11 mindset of trying to make your name great. And you can go to Genesis 12 and understand you don't have to make your name great because God can make your name great. God can make your name great. But I want to look back quickly at Genesis 12. This is important to note. You see, God doesn't just tell Abram, I'll bless you and make your name great. He does say that. But he continues the sentence by saying, so that. Meaning, I'm going to make your name great in order that, or to accomplish this reality, that you will be a blessing. That you will be a blessing. And so this greatness that comes from childlike humility is not even for you. (laughs) It's meant to come to you to actually pass through you. That now you have had your name made great so that you could be a blessing to other people on your campus, in our city, on your sports team, in your workplace, in your family, that you can now offer them the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus, being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, that you can free them up from the slavery of trying to earn approval because approval is something that can be given to them in Christ. And at the end of the day, as Salt Company lives this out, we can actually climb all the way back to this statement at the beginning of the sermon, we take Jesus seriously, not ourselves. (laughs) Right, that that wouldn't be something that frustrates us, but something that we can get excited about. Like, ordinary is winning. (laughs) That we don't have to be impressive We can be untrained, ordinary people so long as people say, man, Salt Company, 
they're just a bunch of ordinary people, but man, they've been with Jesus. Something's different about them. They're so secure in who God says they are. They're so free. They're not overwhelmed. They're not anxious. They're full of joy and hope and peace. Don't you want that? You do. And so does every single person you interact with. Every single person on your campus, in our city, in your family, they want greatness. But the problem is, they might not know that greatness looks different to God. And greatness isn't about measuring up, it's about receiving. Amen? Let's pray to that end. God, we, we acknowledge uh, that we, we have this inner striving. God, we have this ambition within us that has gotten so twisted and we've tried to make our own names great, whether that be through academics, athletics, relationships, bank accounts, um, you name it. God, we've, we've chased this down in so many ways and it's left us wanting more. We've never been satisfied. We're, we're constantly looking for approval and yet you've given us this promise in Genesis 12, in Matthew 18, that greatness doesn't look like us being impressive, but actually us being helpless. And so we acknowledge, Lord, we need you. We need you to save us from ourselves. Thank you for Jesus who lived the life we couldn't, morally perfect, who died not just a gruesome death, but who took the just wrath of God on his own head so that we could be forgiven. We don't have to feel shame or condemnation anymore. And Jesus, you rose victoriously so that we can now be empowered to live secure. That we don't have to be frustrated by being untrained, ordinary people, but that we can delight in that because it's an opportunity for us to make your name great. So I pray, God, that this good news would not just come to us, but would actually pass through us this week, this semester, and for the rest of our lives, that we would rejoice in the fact that you have made our names great so that we would be a blessing to our campuses, to the city of Cedar Rapids, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus, because you deserve to be worshiped. We pray this in your name. Amen.